Hey creatives, you're listening to The Truth is Golden, a podcast produced by Revelator Studio and hosted by yours truly. My name is Arno, welcome to this episode. It is a show about creative minds, what makes them tick, their successes, failures, and everything in between. It is for people who are interested to learn more about creativity and its potential to make the world a better place. In episode three of our second season, I talked to David K. Levine, a distinguished academic, political economist, and popular author. We talked about his West Coast childhood, how economics can explain a lot of modern society challenges, his transplant life in Europe, and how one of the biggest risks he took was a late career change, taking on subjects he was not an expert in. Listening to hear more about David and his accomplishments. So, David, thank you for being on the show with us today. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Tell us a little bit about what you were like as a kid. Gosh, what was I like as a kid? Um, I have to think about that because I haven't been a kid. I haven't been a kid for quite a long time. Um, you know, being a kid is a long is a long time, right? You're a kid for what 18 years or at least 16 years or something like that. So I think I and I lived in a lot of different places growing up. I lived in mostly in Los Angeles, but also Washington D.C. And I think it was kind of different people in different places at different times. So it's hard to say what was I like. What was I like as a kid? You know, as a as a young kid, a five or six year old, I don't suppose I was that uh, I was that unique. You know, I um, like to play in the yard and climb around and and do stuff. I like to play with soldiers and the usual things that boys like to do in those days. Um, I guess older as I got older, I became I sort of view myself as a little bit of an outsider socially, um, and I think that 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 maybe partly is because I growing up in different places and partly just because of my own personality but i always i always had a slightly cynical view of the world not always but at least as an older kid slightly cynical view of the world around me was always a bit curious as to why people people did the things they did in the ways that they did um you know i was a bit i guess i would just you might, what you might describe as a geek as a as a young teenager um you know a little bit a little bit too studious maybe not that socially adept and so forth and so on. Um, and that maybe also contributed to this sort of sense of being a little bit of an outsider and sort of, you know, trying to, trying to assess as an outsider, you know, why are, why are people like this? Um, so I guess I would, I would describe things in that, that general sort of way uh, growing up. And so how might have that influenced um, your later development as an adult in an economist? Well, I think I mean I think it's a lifelong thing, right? I mean, you know, I, I'm curious about why people. You know, I, I'm an economist, so economist study is how people interact with each other and how they organize themselves and so forth. And so, obviously, I think a lot of social scientists probably have this sort of curiosity that you know you you want to understand not just the world around you, but the people around you. Um, and I don't doubt I don't doubt that this sort of is, is, is connected to the fact that I became a social scientist. I became a particular kind of social scientist and economist. But I think the interest I have is that of a social scientist, somebody who wants to understand why people are the way they are, why politics are the way it is, why the economy is the way it is, and so forth and so on. So I've always always had you know I was never interested in economics growing up I should say although my father was actually an economist but I had no interest until I got to college but I always had this this curiosity about people and how they you know I would have described myself as more interested perhaps in sociology just growing up in, in economics but um, I moved eventually to become an economist and that's very interesting so how would um, your family or your direct environment growing up have influenced um, your adult life 
Well, I grew up, I was very lucky. I grew up in a very supportive family. I got a very good education. Um, I had parents. I mean, I had sort of a classical middle class upbringing with very, very loving and supportive parents, two brothers. Um, so, you know, in that sense, and then that was always a support system as well. So, you know, people, you know, people have different experiences, but I think my experience was sort of the good middle class, the good middle class experience of neither being, neither being too rich nor too poor, you know, well enough off as to not face real challenges and that, but not, not so rich as to sort of face the challenge of, of, of you know, of, of potential laziness. It was always clear I would have to work for a living. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's go back to your occupation as an economist. And can you tell us what it is you do in your own words? Yeah, you know, it's funny because economics is a pretty mathematical discipline. And within the, the scale of economists, I'm at the more mathematical end of that. I'm a theorist, which doesn't mean that I don't care or know about data. But I'm not a person who I'm not a person who goes out and does surveys or analyzes surveys. I, I'm a consumer of empirical economists. But what I really try to do is to design theories, ideally simple theories, that explain a great many different facts. So there's a you know, people people I think view math as different than it is and mathematical modeling as different than it is because it requires I would describe it as creativity. I, it, I you know, it's it's a you know, it's, it's a going, it's a going a back and a forth, you know, between trying to understand what the world's like and trying to understand how you can simplify it and how you can sort of draw out the components so that there are the important components as a process of discovery, because you often find unexpected, you often find unexpected things. And then you go back, you say, well, this is very strange. You know, if I believe, if I believed the way I created this model, then there's certain things that I should see that would be true. I go look and then see. Maybe I missed this. Maybe it, maybe there's things that I didn't think about, um, and often there are. Um, and that's sort of I think a hallmark of, of success is to discover new things. So I'm very glad you got on the subject of creativity because it's the main topic of this podcast. So um, I had an inclination that it would require a fair amount of it as being uh, an economist or a mathematician or somewhere in between. Um, how does one, someone like you, who, who is a social scientist and a theorist, uh, come up with those ideas or, or think thinks of new territories to explore and starts building theories and, uh, and, and research those theories um, based on those assumptions? Well, mostly what I would describe is a process of puzzling over things, right? I mean... You know, it could be it could be you're trying to understand why you know why why suddenly are we faced by a wave of populism? What are going to be the consequences of some kind of a trade war? I mean, there's sort of things that motivate you, often just things from the newspaper, things that everybody worries about, and then you puzzle over them. You try to say, or or sometimes there's theories. You know that Keynes had this theory of kind of this this failure of capitalism where people didn't work because you know. The, Nobody worked because nobody worked, nobody bought anything because nobody bought anything, nobody ever worked, right? And so it's a theory, and you puzzle over it. You say, well, does this make sense? How could this work? I try to, you know, I try to think often concretely in terms of real people, in terms of how they interact with each other, and you try to say, look, maybe it works like this, or, or maybe you conclude it doesn't work. So there's a failure, you know, there's a failure rate, and I... I you know, one of the things I, of course, do is I train other economists, and I always, I always tell people, you've got to be prepared. You've got to be prepared by, for failure, right? Sometimes you try something, and it doesn't work, and you just have to say, gosh, that was a good idea. I thought it was a good idea, but it wasn't as good as I thought, and so we just have to get rid of that and go on. So sometimes you spend a lot of time working on something, 
and you find out it was all for nothing. Um, you know, there's days where you wake up and you have an idea in the morning and you, you know, we, we mostly don't write books. We mostly write papers. You know, you wake up in the morning, you have an idea. And by the, by the end of the day, you say, okay, I've got a paper. This could be a good paper. I mean, don't write the whole thing in a day, but you know, you know, it all works. Other times you spend months, you work your heart out, you, you do equations, you go back and forth, you talk to people, you try this and that. And at the end of the day, you say, there's just nothing there. You know, whatever the explanation is, it's not this. It's, it's got to be something else. So, you know, it's a process. It's a process of give and take. You, you know, there's always a sort of a starting point and an ending point. You know, you know where you want to be in a certain sense, a question you want an answer to, a problem that needs a solution, something like that. And there's always a starting point, which is what we know, something simple, you know, something, you know, that we know it doesn't quite do the job, but we think maybe this idea would work. And you try to bring the two things, you try to bring the two things together, and you're kind of always narrowing down the endpoints. Okay, you have some big question. Why, why the rise of populism? And then you kind of maybe break that down to a smaller point and say, well, that is too big. That's too hard. Let's, let's look at a little piece of that. Why, you know, how does propaganda, how does fake news fit into the picture, right? What's the communication? Like, just study a little piece of that. And as you try to bring together, you try to bring together, in some sense, what you can do, you know, with the part of the question that you can solve. And you, you put things together piece by piece. It's like a puzzle. And, you know, we have some of the pieces there, and we're missing a lot of the pieces still. So... Um, you look for the missing pieces, I suppose, and try to try to work out what fits. So, is it like a big puzzle that you're trying to solve at all times? Uh, I just gonna, I'll give you an example. I think it's maybe better to be concrete here. I noted I noted that the two of us started talking at one point because of the work I did in intellectual property. Let me let me just tell you the story. Let me just tell you the story of how this came about. So, we you know, I was educated as an economist, and there was at the time that I was educated a kind of a consensus about intellectual property, about patents, about copyright. And the consensus was it was a necessary evil, is how I describe it. So, you know, intellectual property in one way or another is a grant of monopoly privilege, but the idea is we have to give this monopoly privilege, otherwise people just don't have incentive to create things. Um, you know, and, and, and every sounds very logical, and I, I made perfectly good sense to me and everybody that I do, and I never, I never questioned it, and I didn't, I didn't set out to question it. Um, I actually set out to do something quite different. I was working with McKelly and I were working on models of innovation, and there was sort of a, there was like an accepted way of, of doing models of innovation, but they were they were narrow. They they dealt with you know one one particular kind of a good or one particular kind of a market. And we said, look, you know, really the you know the world's a big place. There's a lot of different markets. We want to do what's called general equilibrium theory. We want to have many markets. We want markets to interact with each other, and we want to you know there's a there's a there's a theory where there's no monopoly where there's lots of markets, and there's a theory where there is monopoly, and, and there's just one market. We want to bring those things together, and, you know, in a, in a context of innovation. So we sat down, and we went back and forth, and this went on for several years. And, you know, we finally, we finally hit upon something that we liked, and we said, okay, you know, here we've got a model. We're getting innovation generated. There's lots of different markets, lots of different, you know, there's sort of not just one kind of a good, but many goods are being innovated. You know, and, and we sort of were, in some sense, we were done. And then we stepped back and we looked at it. We said, you know, there's something funny about this. And what's funny about this is that when we set out to do it, we were convinced because this is the training that we had. This was the logic that we understood. We were convinced that you needed this. You needed this monopoly in order to get to creation. And we looked at, you know, we sort of looked at the equations and we thought about the model. And we said, you know, the heavy lifting. The heavy lifting is not being done by that. Even if we got rid of the, even if we got rid of the monopoly, even if we got rid of the patents, you'd still be getting people innovating. Well, this is very puzzling. 
because you know this we weren't expecting this right so we sort of set out down one path and we said we looked at each other one day and we said you know this is really funny you know this kind of stands you know except conventional wisdom on its head it seems like maybe you don't really maybe patents and copyright aren't really a necessary evil you know, uh, maybe they're unnecessary evil. And so we went then and we started reading, you know, the economists have done a lot of work about the consequences of patents and so forth and so on. We went to the empirical literature, so we not that we contributed to it, but we read what other people, people who studied patents, had to say. And we discovered that there was always this puzzle. Everybody thought as we did, you know, you needed to have the patents. And so people went out and they tried to collect evidence to show that, you know, really, you know, you needed the patents. If you had patents, you got all this extra innovation. And there was always this empirical puzzle. People in empirical said, well, we know you got to have them, but, you know, we can't find it in the data. Um, and so, um, you know, we said, hey, well, that's interesting because, you know, we're theorists and we sort of hit upon this and we don't quite see why you need them either. And these empirical guys are saying they can't find it in the data. And so this led us to sort of, you know, rethinking, when do you really need patents? When do you really need copyrights? Do you really need them? And so forth. And it led to a whole different line of research that went on for then quite some time. But, you know, it was, it was a bit of an accidental discovery. You know, you're working on one line, you're, you're, you're studying one problem, and, you know, something jumps out that you didn't expect. You know, it could often be, it's a mathematical business. Sometimes you just stare at an equation and you say, you know, this, this wasn't what I was expecting. Right, I was expecting it to go one way, and it doesn't seem to go the way that I expected. And then, then you go back and you look at the data, and you think about examples, and you try to understand. You know, does this really make sense? Is this just I maybe I did something wrong? Um, you know, I one one paper that I'm very proud of was a paper that started. It started because of a mistake that I made. I literally a computer error. I wrote a computer program and had a bug in it. I want to go back to the idea of failure because you touched on that before. How does that influence your work? Like you said, you train you train economists and you teach them to expect failure. Yeah. How do you internalize the results? Is it something that's soul crushing, or it's just par for the course? How do you deal with that? Well, failure. There's different kinds of failure here. So one, the worst kind of failure, of course, is if you know the failure where I made the mistake in the program, and I published the paper, and somebody else discovered the mistake, and then I was humiliated in the eyes of the world. I, fortunately, I've managed so far to avoid doing that. The more common kind of failure, one which is, is commonplace in my experience, I think most people's experience, is you, you, know, you, you, you find it in this particular case, they found a mistake, and it ruined, it ruined the beautiful, amazing results. So that, that, that just wasn't true, but there was still interest, there's still something interesting to do. So it was like a half of a failure, say, not a complete failure. So that's, you know, it was a little bit disappointing, but it's not terrible. Another thing that happens sometimes, you get complete failure, right? You get something and then you find a mistake, and then you pull the plug, and everything falls apart. And in the end, you conclude there's just nothing worth doing. Um, that happens. Um, I, you know, I describe it as disappointment. It's not like you know, it's not like you go out and get a champagne and celebrate. Um, you know, I think most people. It depends. You know, I, you know, I'm I'm pretty productive. I write a lot of stuff. I have to throw one away from time to time. I don't like it, but it doesn't it doesn't crush my soul. You know, if I if I was been working on something that had been my sole interest for ten years or something like that, and it's all I've been doing, and then I discovered that it was all a failure, I probably would <laughs> probably feel a lot more crushed. Um, you know, so I, I suppose it depends a little bit. And mostly, mostly we tend to work on shorter term projects. You know, you might you might work on a paper for five years, but you do it in parallel with other things. You can do several things at the same time. So no. No individual thing is that is that crushing, but it, you know it's a disappointment. I just know nobody likes nobody likes to do a lot of work and discover it's all for naught. In, in the case of that computer program that didn't work as expected, yeah. <laughs> at what point do you at what point do you realize that 
um, you've taken the wrong approach and you got to do a 180 and, and look at it differently. Because I'm assuming, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming if you're going down a certain path and you become, you tend to become attached to the results, yes. right? So you want it to work. So at what point do you take a step back and say, wait a second, this is, I'm, I'm fooling myself. How do I, how do I turn that around? So modern economics, modern economics is a pretty harsh taskmaster in this respect. I would, it's not, I do, I sort of an amateur computer programmer as well. Computer programming is a harsher taskmaster than modern economics. So if, you, if a program doesn't work, it really doesn't work. And there's no, you can't pretend that it works. So you try to make it work, and at some point, you just it doesn't work, it doesn't work, right? You can't pretend that something works or it doesn't work. If it's supposed to draw a circle on the screen, and it keeps drawing squares, right? It doesn't work. Modern economics, so you know, economics, because it's a mathematical subject, because it's, it's a scientific subject, is a pretty unforgiving taskmaster in that respect. That is, you know, you can fake it to some extent. But it's pretty difficult. So, you know, at some point, you know, at some point, the fact that something doesn't work, it's not like drawing squares where you draw circles. But, you know, if something, you know, if, if, you're, if you're proving a mathematical theorem and the theorem is supposed to be that something is supposed to go up and you can show that it goes down, then you're done. It doesn't work, right? So, you know, the, one, of the, one of the things about mathematical languages is very precise. At the end of the day, we, ne- we disagree about lots of things. We can never disagree about mathematics. So, you know, I be working with the co-author and, you know, we do something, and once we see the mathematics is right, and we see we make a mistake, we find out the right mathematics, we say, oh, gosh, okay, you know, we might have been fighting about it for a week, arguing over whether it worked or whether it didn't work. At some point, there's no more argument. We just look at each other and say, okay, I was wrong. You were right. That's it. Um, so in that sense, in that sense, it's, you know, it's, it's different. There's a different kind of creative exercise because there's less subjectivity about the results. There's subjectivity about the significance of the results. There's subjectivity about the, you know, how strongly the results connect with real, with real. It's always, data analysis is always difficult, you know. Really predicting something new is is really what happens. But on the theoretical side, it's pretty, it's, in a way, it's almost pretty straightforward. You know when we're right and you know when we're wrong. You know, you can you can try to pretend, but it, it's very very difficult to get away with it, um, and it's a it's a it's a bad, it's a bad discipline to develop as well. I got it. So I, w- I wanted to go back a little bit to the uh, your book against intellectual monopoly, and you touched on um, the lead up to writing that book was doing a bunch of research over the years and realizing that the common commonly accepted uh, conception of intellectual property didn't work. Was there an aha moment that, or eureka moment where you said, this is it, it doesn't work and we got to speak about this? I think there was in this specific instance. I mean, in a sense, I sort of, but in a sense, this is a long time ago. This must have been about, um, gosh, when was that? It must have been the 1990s. I don't remember exactly, but I remember, I remember where there was this moment well, we both looked at each other and said, you know, there's something very fishy about all this intellectual property stuff. We hadn't been working on that. We just looked at each other, and that was that was a kind of an aha moment. It's when we realized that there was something really, you know, it wasn't that we solved the problem of intellectual property or even researched the problem of intellectual property. It was an aha moment where we realized there was really something that needed to be, you know, really needed to be looked at in a different sort of a way. So, you know, there was a moment, there really was a moment where our whole perspective changed. And it, it's funny because it is, it is pretty abrupt, right? You're thinking about things one way, and then suddenly a moment later you, you, you think, oh my gosh, how could I have been thinking that almost, right? I mean, you just look at it from, as you say, 180 degrees different way of doing it. So once you came to that conclusion and wrote the book, do you consider it your job to start um, 
uh, spreading the word and like convince convincing the general public that the commonly accepted uh, stance on intellectual property is wrong. Because in my mind, what I see every day that that uh, erroneous approach is still very much prevalent in many many industries is including mine <laughs> and so so at this point whose job it is to uh to kind of change the uh the the public's opinion and uh, and make sure that people really understand what's happening well i think i think changing the public's opinion is a pretty big job it's not you know so it's, it's not that we we evangelized ourselves and said okay it's now our duty to convince the, the the public, I think we said part of the, what we want to accomplish at this stage is to try to educate the public better. Part of the reason for writing the book was that because it's not a technical economics book, it's not aimed at economists, it's aimed for a much broader audience. And part of the goal of the book was precisely this, was to try to reach out to a much broader audience than economists usually do. A lot of our audience, though, is other economists. Uh, Because you know, if, if, and I think we've had success in this. If, you know, we 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 tried very we tried very hard to convince other economists that the sort of traditional way of looking at things wasn't the right way to look at things. You should look at things in a different point of view. And I think we had a lot of success with that. And of course, part of the goal of that is a sort of the, maybe a trickle down theory. But of course, if it's just our, our word against all other economists. It's hard to see how that's going to be very convincing to the public at large. I mean, we can make logical arguments and so forth and so on. But at the end of the day, people quite rightly are going to wonder, why should we believe these two guys when everybody else says that they're crazy? Right. So I think it's important in the sense to, to, that the economics profession should have a stronger consensus. And then I think it's relatively easier to educate the public. Now, to be honest, I don't think education of the public. I mean, part of the thing is I, I become become relatively less interested in intellectual property as such over the last, say, 10 years. And the reason for that is I come to think the problem is not so much in educating the public, but rather there's a broader problem, and that's the problem of special interests in politics. So the point is that the intellectual property proponents, and there are people who benefit a great deal from it, have been very, very, very successful in their lobbying efforts. Um, And, you know, it, it, once in a while, once in a while, it breaks down. Uh, it was, I don't know if you remember this. There was, um, what was it called? There was one of these proposals in the United States Congress to do even more extreme stuff on the Internet, in defense of intellectual property. I forget what the bill was called. But, uh, you know, usually these things get just sort of rubber stamped and passed through. This was on its way to being rubber stamped when a bunch of companies, including Wikipedia, said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, this is not a good idea. And I don't know if you remember this. There was a period where every Wikipedia page had a little thing at the front saying, there's this horrible hacking, and please call your congressman. And, and a bunch of other things, I think Google, I think a whole lot of companies jumped in because they thought it was a pretty poor idea. And suddenly, you know, it, it was about to be rubber stamped by Congress, and all of a sudden, a bill, a bill, it was just withdrawn. Uh, they, they just, they just realized there was no chance anymore. So, you know, the the, the eye of publicity is a powerful one, but of course, often individual person is pretty small. You know, if I look at the cumulative effect of intellectual property. You know, in a certain sense, we don't understand what we're missing. We could, we could literally access on our telephones, wherever we are, every, every work of mankind at a moment's notice. And we're pretty far, we're pretty far from being able to do that. I mean, you know, Google and, and Wikipedia and so forth are pretty good, and we can get a lot of movies and books online. But, you know, you really, we don't really have everything at our fingertips. Um, and we're pretty far from that still. And technologically, there's not an issue. It's a legal. It's a legal issue, right? 
and, you know, and, and, and it's a legal issue because they, you know there are people who benefit from the current system, and they're very eager to block such a thing. And I was I was led into this in a certain extent by Larry Lessig, who's also been, he's interested primarily in copyright. He wrote a lot. I don't know if you know who Lessig is. A lawyer. That's yeah, right. yeah, I know, I know. Um, and he was involved as a lawyer also in court cases, and he was involved in court cases. There was this retroactive extension of copyright, and the retroactive extension of copyright is just pure money grab. So you can argue about issuing copyright. You know, if you you take a photo, you know, you have more incentive to take a photo because you get a copyright for the photo, right? But if you took the photo ten years ago, you didn't get a copyright on it. Give you a copyright now doesn't doesn't give you. I mean, what does it do? It just gives you some extra money in some sense, right? Uh, yeah, you know, the photo is already taken. It's done, right? It's, you know, so yeah. when they extended the length of copyright, it was extended retroactively to works that already existed. And actually, that's why the copyright was extended. Because if you think about it, from the point of view of incentives, I mean, whether you're going to get it for seventy years or ninety years, do you really care? You think you make a lot more money if you get the copyright for ninety years rather than seventy years? Doesn't make any sense, right? But if your copyright's about to expire, so it's down to zero, getting an extra twenty years is worth a lot. Of course, the people that cared most about it were the people whose copyrights were about to expire. Of course, the problem is, from a social point of view, those are the last people in the world you want to give extra to. Whatever they did, they did it a long time ago. It's already done. They already got paid for it. You're just giving them extra money for something they did a long time ago. So this is a pretty, you know, among economists, among people think about it, you know, there's pros and cons in general of intellectual property, but not on this one. So Lessig, you know, Lessig went, you know, he, he, uh, first he went to the Supreme Court because the, because the, you know, the, the U.S. Constitution seems to actually prohibit retroactive extension of copyright. He lost to the Supreme Court. He then tried to, you know, there's this issue with orphan works. There are all these things where it's not clear who even holds the copyright anymore because they were done a long time ago, but they were automatically entitled to copyright. So nobody can reproduce them because there's nobody to even go to. And so he had a mild proposal with Congress. The proposal was you should have to pay a dollar or something to get a copyright extension. You know, you get your initial copyright, and then if you want another however many years, you pay a dollar and sign a form or something. So it was trivial thing, but it would, you know, if, if, if the person vanished, they wouldn't pay the dollar and sign the form, so that at least other people could do something with it. It was overwhelmingly defeated. So then, and then, he, you know, then he thought, oh my, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, it's nothing to do with what's right and what's wrong. It has to do, you know, with the fact that these, that these Congress guys are just in the pocket of, of, of the intellectual property industry. I largely agree with that, um, and so it's got me much more interested, not so much, I mean, I sort of think I know what a lot of the right economic answers are, I think a lot of economists do, so I become much more interested in the question with respect both to intellectual property and with respect to other things. You know, given that we know that lots of these policies are bad, lots of these policies are good, why do we keep seeing the government do the bad ones and not the good ones? Why do, you know, why do the, why do the few people always seem to win over the many people, right? And it's not because it's not they're richer. Right. I mean, it may be that individually, you know, Hollywood movie stars richer. But if you say, look, how much does the hot money does the Hollywood crowd have compared to everybody else? It's trivial, right? I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're richer each individual than the rest of us. But, you know, if we mass our money and we put it up against the Hollywood money. We've got the beat, you know, hands down. So it's not that somehow richer. It's just somehow they're better organized. And so that's actually been a focus of a lot of what I've been doing for really the last 10 years now is trying to understand why are these why are these small groups Special interest groups, why are they so effective? And when are they effective? Because they're not always effective. I can, I can give you an example. Minorities, minorities are not super good. Minorities are not super good at lobbying for their rights. 
right? So, you know, why is it the Hollywood guys can get all the intellectual property that they want, but, you know, say for a long time, gays who are a minority couldn't get, you know, couldn't get any rights that they wanted, just to take an example. And the only time when they got the rights is when eventually a majority agreed with them that they should get it, right? But as long as they were a minority, they could never win. So, you know, it's the kind of questions like this, you know, it's puzzles. Why does one small group win? Why does a different small group lose? Um, so those are the kinds of things I've been puzzling over for a while now. Maybe I hope I made a little bit of progress on it. We'll see. So here's a uh, contentious topic for you. What do you think of patent trolls? I've never met anybody who's thought much of patent trolls. <laughs> Maybe even including patent trolls themselves. Um, I had a... Um, so one of the most famous patent trolls is a guy named Lemelson. Um, he uh, he patented optical character recognition or some vague description of optical character recognition in the 1950s or something like that. And through a series of legal maneuvers, he kept the patent alive for 40 years till somebody actually invented optical character recognition as opposed to vaguely describing that it might be possible. And then he demanded, then he demanded money from them because he held the patent and he succeeded. Uh, and he got, you know, the optical character recognition was originally used for, the, you know, these, the supermarket scans was the first practical application. So some years after he said, maybe a computer could do this, if only you were clever enough, but maybe I'm not, um, somebody actually did it. And so then he managed to get a percentage of every sale made on a scanner and he became fabulously rich. He was famous because he did, he had thousands of patents, all of them complete crummy patents. And he tried constantly to try to get money out of people. Finally, he succeeded. If you go, one of the things my, my, my PhD is from LA. And I must say, every time I walk by the Lemelson building at LIT, I feel I feel a little bit bad because that's pretty ill-gotten money, in my opinion. Anyway, I had a in the book. There's a, there's some there's some discussion of Lemelson and what he did and how he used something called submarine patents and so forth and so on. Anyway, it turns out Lemelson has two sons. One of whom is academic, and both of whom apparently are are, are, are alert for bad press about their father. Because I had a long correspondence with one of the two sons, who was very offended by what the book had to say. So, at any rate, does that answer the question? What do I think about patent trolls? Yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 perfect. No, and, and I think uh, there's a really good case to be made for. Uh, you know, approaching this this question of intellectual property from an ethical perspective, and to me, as a complete novice and a non-economist, when I look at this issue, it's why should someone who's done either no work at all or very little work financial financially benefit from uh, someone else's work just because? Uh, they took advantage of the system. That's that's the the kind of idea that doesn't really sit well no. with me. There's patent trolls and there's patent trolls, I should say. So there's a, a patent troll that makes some vague claim and then tries to tax everybody. There's a patent troll that buys up patents from other people, sometimes maybe even useful patents, um, and then they, they sort of take over and try, or there's, so for example, uh, maybe they use their own patents. So here's an example. There's Texas Instruments. So you've heard of Texas Instruments? Yeah. Texas Instruments, when I was, when I was a, not a kid, but when I was about college age, they were a big, they were very, very big. You know, everybody had a Texas Instruments calculator. They were one of the first big widespread manufacturers of integrated circuits and, and chips and so forth. They were a big chip manufacturer. They invented a lot of useful stuff, and they patented a lot of the useful stuff that they invented. Eventually, as is often the case with tech companies, eventually they sort of fell behind you know, Intel moved ahead of them, other companies moved ahead of them, and they kind of dropped out of the running as a really productive company. And so they spent the latter part of their life as a patent troll, basically suing all the companies that could make chips, 
based on the fact that they had some patent for a chip that they'd made some years before. Now, you know, if I put my, if I put my other hat on, I think from an ethical point of view, you could argue, look, they invented something. Somebody later is making use of that invention. Maybe they're entitled to some of the proceeds of that. I don't really, I don't really think that's correct, but I can see, I can see there at least there's more ambiguity. They did do something useful. They did patent something useful, and other people have built on that work later on. I promise, if everybody has to pay everybody for useful work that they did in the past, you know, thank thank heavens that we don't have, you know, if every somebody said if every letter in the alphabet was patented. And the patents never expired. So anytime you, every time you, or I think every word, you know, every time I wrote the word pizza, I had to pay the owner of the word pizza, right? So, you know, a penny, something like that. And we wouldn't be able to write or read. I mean, it would be completely crazy. So everything would come to a complete halt. Yeah, or something outside of that language would emerge and that's not patent. Well, yeah, but of course the problem is people try to patent that too, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's true. There's always a, a patent troll waiting in the wings. Right. Anyway, so patent trolls are not high up on my list of favorite people. I agree. I agree with you. There is a, there's certainly an ethical issue. The ethical issue comes about also in other cases. There's cases where patents, the person that patented something wasn't really the person that invented it for one reason or another. There's um, the story, I guess, of the invention of the telephone is like that. As we know, Alexander Graham Bell patented the telephone. Uh, the guy that actually invented the telephone was a, was a, a uh, was an Italian immigrant to Korea. I think his name was Alessandro Mucci or something like that. Uh, and he didn't file. He invented the telephone, but he didn't file for a patent because he was too for, poor to afford the patent filing fee. And so the way it works is it, in those days is if you patented it first, you got the patent. It didn't matter who actually invented it. So the wrong guy got the patent. Uh, something similar actually happened with the television. Uh, I believe the television was invented by somebody named Philo Farnsworth. Um, but they was given to um, it was given. I think CBS actually, you know, big corporation claimed that they invented the television, and there was a lawsuit. I think there was a lawsuit that, that lasted until um, Farnsworth's death, and I think eventually his heirs won the lawsuit and established that really he had invented the television and was entitled to some sort of royalties for it. Um, but you know, maybe even worse than patent trolling is giving patent to the wrong person. No, that makes sense. Um, I am a, a huge fan of uh, Nassim Taleb, the author of Anti-Fragile and Black Swan, and his latest book is Skin in the Game that I'm currently reading. And he's a huge proponent of heuristic techniques to make uh, imperfect but generally accurate decisions, quick decisions in the real world. And so that's what this quote brought to my mind is um, how do you recon reconcile the idea of understanding the word through uh, well-established theories you know it, even in heuristic decision making there's a strong element of theory right it's not you know it, it's it's you know it, it can be the theory of heuristic decision making itself but you know in a certain sense in a certain sense, you know, there's quick decisions and there's slow decisions, right? So if you, you know, there's, you know, so certain kinds of decisions where we have a lot of data and it's possible to basically ask the question, look, if we look at, you know, if we look at a bunch of, a bunch of cases and we looked at what people did and we look which ones worked, which ones didn't, we can kind of sort it the ones that seem to work, Right. Um, but, you know, if you want to, if you talk about heuristic decision-making, talk about, you know, so computers that play chess do heuristic decision-making, 
Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, they forecast a certain number of moves in advance, but at the end of the day, they can't go all the way to the end because it's just too much. So at some point, they say, they look at the board and they have to stop. And the heuristic is they assign some kind of value to say, this board looks pretty good or this board looks pretty bad. That's the heuristic part. Okay. Well, the whole heuristic, this whole heuristic procedure is based on a theory of how chess works, right? It's not just practical knowledge. Any, any, even a heuristic decision-making procedure, one way or another, has to be based on a theory. It has to be based on a theory that says, look, that you know, the theory of what's important, a theory of what's causal, right? A causes B, or A is correlated with B. I mean, there always has to be. There always is underlying it some kind of a theory might be a bad theory, it might be a good theory. In some cases, maybe it's an obvious theory, right? But often, you know, often theories that are obvious theories are wrong theories as well. It seems, for example, completely sensible to say, look, if we may, everybody in, in the world was a better person, they were more altruistic, we cared more about our neighbors, the world would be a better place. So I'm here to tell you as a game theorist, as an economist, that's not a true assertion. It's, it's, we can imagine we can imagine worlds, we can imagine economies where the property that if everybody became more caring and more altruistic, everybody would be worse off. You know, so it seems an obvious theory to one better people make a better world, but it's not a true theory. I did some reading on uh, on game theory in, in preparation of for this and there's a section on your website on that. Um, I, I forget the name. Is it the prisoner's dilemma that uh, you're referring to? No, the, but it's been, it's similar to the prisoner's dilemma. So, they, but the points actually, they put a point. The conceptual point is not that hard to grasp. The conceptual point is this: you know, in, in, if people are more altruistic, it affects their themselves. So, for example, in order to discourage crime, we need to punish people. Right? If we're more altruistic, we're less willing to punish people. If we're less willing to punish people, it may cause crime to go up. That's a bad thing. Right, so you have to weigh. You have to weigh. There's some benefits of people being more altruistic, but there's some costs of people being more altruistic. I think that's really, in some sense, the heart of things. You know, if you take you take the the, the, the most extreme version of Christianity, which is turn the other cheek. So, if everybody was a perfect person, the world would be a better place. That's actually a true statement. The problem is in the gray area in between. If people are imperfect but better. So there's still, you know, we still have criminality. People still try to steal. They're not perfect people, but they're maybe less inclined to steal, but we're also less inclined to punish them, right? Because, you know, we're turning the other cheek. We don't, we don't want to punish. So the problem is it's not clear which way it goes. It could go either way. The world could be a better place or it could also be a worse place. And in order to really answer the question, but as a practical matter, you need to have a lot of data. You need to know a lot about, you know, different kinds of crimes. When we say make people better people, how much better do we make them? But, you know, something that seems on the face of it to be obvious, if you start thinking more carefully about the structure of society, about the fact, you know, people have to honor contracts, there have to be penalties for violating contracts, and on and on and on, you realize that it's not so clear-cut as all that. So what's the answer to that puzzle, then? Well, I was just intended to suggest that, that so I, you know, I don't think as a practical matter we have a magic wand that we can wave to make people better in general. So, <laughs> No, we certainly don't. Uh, and, yeah. and you so th- probably, I would say probably on balance, if you were to ask me, you know, if we could teach people in school and try to teach them to be better people, is that a good idea or a bad idea? I think I would be say it's probably a good idea, even though as a matter of theory it might make things worse. But I think also part of it is to teach people to be more discriminating. Right. So being being more altruistic, being a better person is conditional altruism. Right. Which is the more reciprocal, reciprocal altruism. Right. Which is be kind to people that are kind to you, but don't feel an obligation to be kind to people that are unkind to you. 
that's stronger. That, that's a stronger force towards overall goodness than just straight being nice to everybody, right? Because that discourages people from unkindness and encourages people to kindness. So it provides incentives. At the same time, you try to be more kind yourself, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And that, you know, that actually does get at the prisoner's dilemma because the prisoner's dilemma, each person is being very narrow-minded. Right, and in a repeated prisoner's dilemma, we can get around that because there's what we do is we we punish those people that don't that don't cooperate with us, and that gives people incentive to be be cooperative, and then we both wind up being better off. Yeah, that makes sense. I I try to wrap my head around the whole thing. Uh, it took me a while, but it, it does actually make a lot of sense. Uh, it's it's something that doesn't come naturally to me, so I had to spend some quite some time reading and trying to understand how that worked. I should I should go back and I should go back. I mean, I, I, there's some stuff on the website that's an attempt to explain this, but it's it could I could I should probably go back and revise it a bit. I think it's useful, but it could be updated and explained a little bit better. I think you remind me that it's there. It, yeah, for me, it's simple. It's not just not the kind of thinking I do on a regular basis so i gotta get the the thinking gears rolling and then after a while i, I end up understanding what uh, what that's all about um so you live in uh florence italy right that's correct what's the what are the main differences you found between uh the u.s and europe or italy for that matter well geez i mean there, there there's there's actually a lot of similarities and the differences in some ways are perhaps subtle differences So, I mean, physically, physically, Europe is, it, 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 particularly Italy, tends to be different because the architecture is much older, and there's probably a stronger sense of preservation. So you don't, you know, if you think of, if you think of the United States as being defined by the mini mall, which I think is an exaggeration, but it certainly has an element of truth in it. You know, you don't find, you don't really find that kind of monstrosity so much in Europe. You know, in a downtown area, you have beautiful older buildings. Although I must say, they, they there's some post World War II buildings that are pretty awful. And physically, physically, it's a very beautiful place. I mean, in terms of climate and so forth, it's not it's not that dissimilar in terms of people. I don't know. I find people. I find people. You know. You know. There's nice people. There's 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 ugly people. There's you know. There's good people. There's bad people. I find that at every 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 location. I don't wouldn't say I find the mix so much different in Italy than I found in the United States. I've some lovely people, some very kind people, some very friendly people, and then people that aren't so nice. Uh, I could say the same thing about the United States. I don't find I don't find so much of a difference there. There's cultural differences that you notice. Uh, You know that you know. For example, you know, you you don't really tip in restaurants, for example, but people really appreciate repeat business, and you become friends with the people that run the restaurant and so forth. Um, so there's kind of a there's kind of a socialization that revolves around eating out that's maybe stronger in Italy. I think it's, it's more of an Italian thing than a European thing. Um, You know, there's a lot more. There's a lot more legal restrictions, and it can be pretty irritating at times. Um, you know, there's things. There's things about opening hours, closing hours. There's monopolies over over the drugstores. So that you know, you, you basically, you know, in the United States, you have these, in Canada, you have these enormous pharmacies where you get everything that you want, and they're open 24 hours. In Italy, there's these little tiny shops, and they just have a few things, and they're closed all the time. And if, you know, if you need an aspirin at midnight, you know, or three o'clock in the morning, yeah, there's a pharmacy somewhere with a 20 mile radius that's open but it's a different one every night and you have to kind of guess which one it is so yeah there's sort of there's still some little inconveniences which which have gone down over the time i've lived in italy there used to be much more of that kind of thing um so you know in, in, in that sense i find the differences less than they used to be but it used to be a very irritating place to live just in terms of doing day-to-day -day things you know waiting in line at the bank waiting in lines at the post office I find that much less so now than it was five years ago, though. 
Um, what other dimensions would I would I think about here? So c- culturally speaking, like what are the the one or two things that you really enjoy about being there? Oh, I, you know, I actually live. So Florence is a somewhat of a unique place for the following reason. It's it's a it's a it's a real city where there's real businesses and so forth, but it's also a very has a smaller city. But it's also it's very very heavy tourist population city and one of the consequences of that is it has great amenities for a city that size the number of good restaurants per capita for a city the size of Florence is just phenomenal so you know it's a great place it's a great place to eat out you know there's a pretty wide variety of cuisines it's really not a large city it's not like a New York or Los Angeles or London or something like that and it doesn't have the density or concentration of restaurants in a place like that but for a city the size of this to be able to live in a small city which is convenient where you can get around it's all also, you know, it's a tourist attraction for a reason. It has wonderful museums, things to go, places to do, buildings to visit, and so forth. So it's actually, in this respect, is a very, very pleasant place to live. As I say, it offers the small city advantage of being, you know, relatively manageable, um, but it offers a lot of large city amenities in terms of things to do. I would say the other. I guess I suppose the other thing is it's not something you don't find in the you don't find in the United States, but you find it less frequently. Is kind of the I'm, you know, I, I live in I live in an urban area that's not that urban. You know, I, I live in an area. It's not in the tourist center. It's not that crowded. But you know, they're they're they're. I'm surrounded by shops and restaurants and coffee houses. As I go out my door and I walk down the street to things, right? That's less common. There are places I know neighborhoods like that in the United States. You know, in the center of Manhattan or something like that. You you have that. But it's not so common, right? Things are, I think, more spread out. Center of city, I think, offers you. Know, you you walk down a block, you won't find five restaurants on an average block. In Florence and in Italy in general, you find a lot more of that in terms of shops and amenities being, you know, sort of in the city or center area. Anything in particular that you miss about not living in the states? Well, you know, there's always there's always favorite there's always favorite foods from the old days which are harder to get overseas. You know, there's always there's always the odd there's always the odd thing that you can't. It's hard to get for some reason. Uh, you know, nothing, nothing particularly gourmet variety, but just some childhood, some childhood thing. You know, chicken noodle soup in a can or something like that. Uh, I can't say, I can't say that it, 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 these sorts of little things disturb me that much. But every once in a while, you know, you you're, you're, you have a craving for wheat thin crackers or something like that, and you can't get them. But uh, you know, there, there's always these little, little idiosyncratic things. I want to go back uh, briefly to your work as an economist and. Um do you have or have you had any mentors in your in your career? Oh, good heavens, yes. Um, you know, I, I, I almost hesitate to mention them because I, I'm sure there's so many of them I would leave somebody out. But I know I was, I think I've been very lucky in that respect. I had very good mentoring really from the time. I, I, I really intended to become an economist from the time I was a sophomore in college. And really from that time. So as I, was, I was an undergraduate at UCLA, but I also did graduate work at economics there and I was really adopted by a number of the faculty and I also taught at UCLA afterwards I came back and taught there for many years and many of my mentors were still on the faculty but you know I really I really had people that looked after me as undergraduate that encouraged me that taught me um, you know and, and you know I had I had mentors at, at um, I had mentors at MIT where I did my PhD some of them were faculty members some of them were lifelong co-authors some of them were my peers I mean, you know, I, and I count up the people to whom I owe huge intellectual debt, not in the sense that I read a book from afar, of course, which there's many, but people that, you know, really, you know, really I talked to that sat with me, that discussed ideas with me. The number must be in the dozens. You know, there's a few people, there's a few people that stand out. They're, you know, they're sort of my lifelong co-authors stand out. 
but uh, you know, that's maybe just the tip of the iceberg. My first, my very first mentor was Jack Hirschleifer at UCLA. He, he I took an undergraduate class from him. I was doing very well. He said, look, you've got to take this graduate class instead. And I worked as a research assistant for him later as an undergraduate. And I wrote some, you know, I wrote some paper. And it was very unformed. It was very vague. It was, you know, when you're first starting out, you know, you have big, big ideas and you don't know how to bring them down to earth. I, uh, at least for me, uh, some people, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you have to, ideas are too little. You, you need to, you know, you're never, maybe there are people that sort of start in the right place, but I certainly wasn't one of them, right? And I needed people, I needed people, people to pull me down to the ground and say, look, you can't write big, vague papers about nothing. You've got to write, you know, concrete, well-formed papers. You've got to, you know, narrow your ideas down. You need to do things that are concrete. Um, and at least in the early part of my career, this is a very essential thing that my, my co-authors, my mentors, my teachers, you know, yeah, they, they pushed on me, maybe even beat on me a little bit to, you know, get me to get me to sort of do the sorts of things that needed to be done. So it was an essential, it was essential in an intellectual sense, right? I mean, um, you know, at the end of the day, you have to produce things that are useful, not just things that are, you know, and, and, and you have to learn how to do that. Yeah, yeah. Some of us just learn the hard way uh, by failing early, early and often. Yeah, lots of ways to do it. But to me, a lot of the importance of matters are, you know, it may be a failure, but they're telling you, look, this just won't do, right? Uh, you know, and you go back and you, you know, you try this. You know, sometimes it's suggestions, but sometimes it's literally just looking and saying, "This just won't do." No, that makes a lot of sense. So, so I guess this could be uh, considered a source of inspiration in some way. Um, but I want to follow up with this question: Is where do you find inspiration? So I would, I mean, in, in not just in my mentors, but I suppose I find a lot of inspiration from from other economists, from people, you know. You read things and they have great ideas in them, and I, that's what I find to be inspiring, right? Um, you know, I've been, I've been occasionally, I've been in a seminar, and somebody gets up and they start talking, and you know, your mind just opens up and you say, "Wow, you know, this is really a great idea. I hadn't expected this." I, this is what I find inspiring, right? You read a paper, um, you know, there's something that you think, you know, you say, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. And then somebody says, here's the way to do it right. And you look at it and say, yes, that's it. These are the things, these are the things I, I, I find inspiring. You're, you, you, you were, you know, a photographer and an architect and so forth. And what inspires you? You see a great building or a great photograph, right? Isn't that what inspires you? It depends. It has to fit certain criteria, and I'm <laughs> I'm very difficult to please. The point is, when you see something that pleases you, is that not inspirational? Oh, it is a hundred percent. Right. It's the same here, right? I, I'm like you in that. I'm very critical and have you know very specific things. But I see something that really pleases me. That's my inspiration. Mm -hmm. So, and it seems like there's an underlying theme um, that you touched on in the mentor question and in the, in the last question, where intellectual ex exchange is critical to those things. Oh yeah. No, no. If we didn't, if we just sat in rooms by ourselves, we'd never go anywhere. You know, one of the one. I'll tell you the thing. I'll tell you. Well, one of the things, there's a social thing that I most enjoy about careers in economists. You, know, you, you go to school, you read papers, you're a young guy, you read these famous papers by these guys much more senior to you, you find them very inspirational. To me, one of the great things has been that later, often I've gotten to meet the people that wrote these inspirational 
you know, these inspirational things that were inspiration to me, you know, a particular paper that inspired me, a book that inspired me, to actually meet the people that did it as real people, you know, sit down, have dinner with them, have a beer with them, chat with them. To me, you know, I, I just find that fantastic. You and I both. Um, that's actually, if I'm honest, one of the main reasons behind that podcast is to find inspirational people and at the same time kind of put the, the word out there and, and hopefully make other people, allow other people to discover those inspirational people. That's tremendous. Uh, going back to the uh, topic of failure and risk-taking, uh, this is a two-part question. What is the biggest risk you've ever taken and what is your biggest failure? Well, the biggest risk I've ever taken would probably be a decision I made when I when I started working on political economies whenever it was five or ten years ago. I mean, maybe it's not that huge of a risk because I have a long, well-established career. So if the thing, I mean, at this point, it's too early to tell whether this is going to be a success or a failure. If it turns into a great failure, I won't. You know, I'm I'm, I'm old enough and I've done enough stuff that it won't it won't kill me. But uh, in terms of a risk, you know, it, you know, in your in sort of late stage of your career, but a lot of people do this. It's a time to take risks because. As you've established yourself, writing a few more, you know, sort of extensions of things you've already done, maybe isn't as rewarding at that point as saying, I'm going to really take a risk and try to do something, something bigger. Um, so I, I did a, almost a, a, a career, not career change within economics almost. So that's a fairly, that's a fairly big risk. So, so what is that change that, um, that you've, you've enacted? So now I write, so you know, so what does that mean? It means I'm working on a different set of topics. It means I'm entering into an area where I'm not an expert. I don't have an established reputation. It means that, you know, it means I'm almost starting over again as a rookie, right? And I have to make my way and I have to accept that, you know, that I'm a, I'm a novice and other people, other people are much more experienced in this area than I am. Um, and I have to accept also that if I'm going to affect change, it has to be gradual. People are going to look at these things and say, no, you know, we really don't want to view the world that way. You know, if I want to change the way people look at the world, I have to be patient and maybe I have to, you know, maybe I succeed and maybe I don't. But I don't know. Right. At the end of the day, maybe people say that was no big deal or it was a waste of time. Um, or maybe they'll say, yeah, that was pretty useful. I don't know. I mean, yeah, you commit yourself. You commit yourself to it. You say, look, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try to make success out of it and see where it goes. Um, so that's a risk because I don't really know in the end where it will come out. It's not, you know, it's not like saying, oh, I'll try this particular paper or something like that. No, I basically, I basically, you know, committed myself to, you know, work primarily in this one area. Um, and I have sort of an idea of what I want to do with it and a way of doing it. And, you know, I, I want to follow this line to see where it leads. But you know what? It may not lead anywhere. I, there's no promises. There's no guarantees in this, right? Um, so that's in terms of risk. But I can't call it a failure or success at this point because I'm only about, you know, I'm only about halfway there. Ask me in 10 years. Ask me in 10 years and I'll be able to tell you whether it was a success or a failure. Well, we can do the follow-up interview in 10 years. <laughs> exactly. What is my biggest... What is my biggest failure? I know, um, I know what it was at one time, but it was sort of a failure that it turned at least at some point into a partial success. Um, when I was first starting out, I had this, I thought a very good idea of um, sort of evolving money and inflation, and I thought this was really a great idea. And you know, it didn't really it didn't really go anywhere. I, I, I published a paper, even in a fairly decent journal, and nobody paid any attention to it. Never, nobody ever read it. So yeah, that that sort of counts as a failure, right? I mean, I liked it, but nobody else really liked it. And the irony was, it was it was a failure because, in some sense, it was ahead of its time. Somebody 
who was doing work on it, you know, 15, 20 years later, discovered the paper and thought actually it was rather good. So, you know, it's a paper that nobody read for 15 years, but in the end, it wasn't a complete failure because 15 years later, a few people actually read it and did something with it. So um, how do we count that? You know, that's up to your, it's your own interpretation of your failure. I mean, well, if you ask me 10 years ago, I said that was my biggest failure in the sense that I had very high expectations that were extremely disappointed. I would probably say that today as well, but I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little more sanguine about it because at least, at least for the interim, other people see it as being not a complete waste of time. And and I, I should have prefaced my question on failure with the following: is that um, I don't point out failures for the sake of it or or make people wrong, but I. I interact with a lot of creative people and seems to be a very common theme in the creative world is that failure is part of the course and more important than failure is the lessons we get from it because we're all going to fail at some point and everybody has a different definition uh, some people will have a lot of smaller failures some people will have catastrophic failures um, but to me unless you die from making a mistake it's never a complete failure because you can always learn from it. Right. Well, well, thankfully, we, we economists don't generally die from our mistakes. But um, I mean, you asked the question, what is my biggest failure? And I had a, a certain difficulty answering that, not because I'm ashamed of failures, but because I would describe myself more in the many small failure category. I don't disagree with anything you say about failure. But, you know, the failures, the failures are tend to be more things that, you know, you spent six months, maybe even two years working on a project, and at the end you conclude it wasn't worth very much. Right? So it wasn't, it wasn't a big failure, right? But, you know, you add up a lot of these things. It's, it's just a very common experience, right? And it can be, you know, there's different degrees of failure. You, you know, you maybe at the end you get something, but it's just much less than you hoped for. This is a very, very common thing. It's a very, very common thing for me. I mean, if I were to go through, you know, all the things I've done and add up all the ones where I was disappointed at the end, and I said, gosh... I got something, but it just really wasn't worth it, right? I mean, that's in the hundreds, right? I mean, that's not a, that's not that's not a, you know that's a very regular kind of occurrence. But I don't, you know, at this point, it doesn't even doesn't even phase me that much. I know that this is going to occur. I know that this is going to occur, you know, three times out of four or something like that. You know, in this, in this new political economy thing I've been working on, you know, I just went through a whole series of papers all of which I was disappointed with in the end. You know, none of them, you know, I, I started out thinking this is going to be great. I you know, worked on it for, worked on it for months and months with my co-authors. And in the end, it was okay, right? It wasn't great, right? And, you know, you, you, you had these hopes and then the hopes are, are broken in the end. And I don't, you know, I like it to be great. I don't want it to be okay. But, you know, at the end of the day, you have to admit it was just okay, you know. And then, then there's the other days, as I say, the days that make it worthwhile are the days you, you know, you work, you know, two years and it's just okay. And there's other days where you wake up in the morning and you have an idea and by noon it's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, it's like that. You live for the days, you live for the days where you wake up in the morning and by noon it's great. <laughs> there should be more of those days. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, I'm, I'm not expecting you to answer, but a good question to ask is how do we make those happen more often, right? God, I just wish I, you know, it's a great question if i knew the answer i i would happily tell you i wouldn't, wouldn't wish to conceal that i just wish i knew the answer <laughs> we can talk about that in 10 years right. I, I would but i i would say to a certain extent like the rule is obvious right you keep pecking out know, it's luck there's a lot of luck involved in it right and the way the way that you take advantage of luck is by trying right it's it's a very trite thing to say i suppose but you know try try again right you keep you keep 
you know, keep hitting the hammer, you keep hitting the nail, and one day you get lucky. And I don't know, I don't know what really to say beside that. It's a pretty obvious. It's a pretty obvious thing to say. But it's true. It's generally true. I know people. I know people that you know, you know hit the thing, hit the thing every day for you know thirty years, and nothing happened, and then suddenly one day the nail went in. Um, sadly, you know, sometimes it never does, but. Some people, some people, the nail seems to go in every time. I wish I knew how to be one of those. I know people like that, but I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you how they do it. Those people, you know, we've got to be careful with uh, how people um, tell their own stories. Well, and uh, for how many successes, for X number of successes, how many failures you have, and those are the stories we don't necessarily hear either. So it's well, I can tell you. I can tell you honestly. In my case, the ratio, the ratio of failures to successes is pretty favorable for the failures, not so favorable for the successes. That's. I think that's a very good point to end on um, because it seems to be true from. Uh, everyone who's accomplished anything in their life that I've spoken to, there's more failure than successes. But, uh, you know, there's something to be said for the lessons learned from the failures and uh, that are applied to that one instance where things become successful. So I think that's... Yeah, yeah I'm not I'm not 100% sure that's true. You know, it's nice to think we take a lesson out of failure. I'm not sure it's not just, it's just not, you know, we fail because we have bad luck and we succeed because we have good luck. And you just flip the coin a lot of times until it comes up with the good luck side. Okay, that's an interesting take. I'm not sure that's a wrong theory. <laughs> well, we can agree to disagree. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little less, you know, it's a little less, you know, it's a little less optimistic in the sense that maybe the failure wasn't really so good for you philosophically. Um, but, you know, but it, but it also says, look, at least, at least flip the coin again because maybe you get lucky the next time around. Um, I think some failures we take a lesson out of. I think, sadly, some failures are just failures, and you just have to put them aside and go on. Um, um, speaking of great success, uh, this is my last question for you. Stones or Beatles? I guess I'm a Beatles guy in the end. Do you care to elaborate why? <laughs> That's a pretty. It's a pretty hard choice because I'm at the age. I'm at the age where where I love both the Stones and the Beatles. I think I grew up. I guess, you know, if you ask me who has the best, who has the best individual things, I would say the greatest Stones are probably better than the greatest Beatles. But as I said in terms of the diversity and the overall the overall musical picture, I have to go with the Beatles. There's no no wrong answer to that question, but it's. Uh... I shouldn't think that there would be. <laughs> I, I'm a Stones fan all the way. You must have as many opinions as there must be as many people opinions as there are people. Yeah. So what's you? What are you? Your Beatles or your Stones? I'm a Stones fan all the way. All the way. Um, yeah. Just. You ever seen them in a live performance? No, I wish. Oh man, yeah. Um, neither have I. I would love. I would love. To, I would love to see this. It's actually for live performance. It would be difficult to see the Beatles in a live performance at this point, obviously. But yeah, if you sent me back through time, I'd go with the live performance with the Stones for sure. So would I. Yeah, but you're a Stones fan. I'm a Beatles fan. It's, it's more remarkable for me. <laughs> well, there's, uh, you know, the difference between uh, the music and then uh, the the perf live performance, right? It's not every band That's is right. a, a live band. True enough. So, David, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for uh, being so generous with your time. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for taking the time to, to walk through all this with me. And I want to wish you the best of luck in your uh, new wish career. <laughs> thank you. 
again, Arno here. If you like this interview, be sure to give us a review on SoundCloud or iTunes. This episode was produced by Revelator Studio, edited by Ryan Akhtari, with music by Bounce Trio. To be notified of upcoming episodes, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at revelator underscore TO, or sign up for our newsletter on our website at rvltr.studio. Keep on supporting creativity and never stop kicking fear in the nuts. Till next time, ciao. Thank you.